0: Heavenly Father, we declare your glory. We declare this morning and confess with each of our hearts, our own mouths. We say you are worthy. You're worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And as we come to open your word this morning, we ask that you would give us insight by your Holy Spirit's presence. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truth of your word and that you would seal it within our hearts, God, that you would grip our lives and encourage us today through the wonderful truth of your word and help us, Lord, strengthen us, Father, to walk so that our lives are daily impacted by the hope of the gospel. Teach us, God, how to do that, how to live for your glory day by day, moment by moment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, I I want us to see through this text that our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ goes beyond the initial call of God to salvation. Responding to the gospel deals with how we live our daily lives. I, I hope that we see that this morning that we see the context of John chapter eleven verses forty five through fifty four. And the title of the message this morning is the third part in the series, The Resurrection and the Life, Responding to the Gospel. And that's exactly what what I I hope we see this morning and and are able to ask this question of our own lives, of our own hearts. Whatever our spiritual state is, wherever we're at in a relationship with Christ, whether it's non-existent or whether we have a vibrant faith in Christ. The question I want us to ask and I want to pose this morning is how are we responding? How do we respond to the gospel? Therefore, seeing the gospel and understanding uh, the the way that, I, that that we mean or I mean the gospel this morning is first understanding that the gospel speaks of of eternal life, certainly in that point at which a person enters salvation and has a faith relationship in Christ. But it also goes beyond that and it speaks about the hope or the continuing hope of God interacting and intersecting our daily lives every day, moment by moment, by the presence of his Holy Spirit In our lives. And so the first truth I want us to see from the text this morning is the gospel shapes everyday life. If you found your place in verse forty five of chapter eleven, say amen. Follow along as I read. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary. And saw what he had done, believed in him, that is, Jesus But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer plan- therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into the city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. In this text, we see the gospel shapes everyday life. Here's how we see that. I want to give you just kind of a quick recap of chapter 11. We've seen throughout the Gospel of John how the ministry of Jesus intersects everyday life. We saw it even beginning in the Gospel of John in chapter 2 with the wedding of Cana. And Jesus goes there. He's attending the feast. They run out of wine. His mom comes to him. He then He then takes water and turns it into wine so that at the feast they have the best wine. We see him intersecting the the woman at the well in her daily life, in her daily chore, everyday mundane activity. She's coming to draw water from the well. Jesus says to her, if you would ask the one who's talking to you, he would have given you living water, right? She offers him. He offers her this this living water. If she'll believe by faith and trust in him, she'll have this source, this satisfying source of water that that quenches her spiritual he, he intersects her there. He intersects with with her life there at the well. He, he intersects with the five thousand that that he feeds there by the seashore as they're coming. They're just ordinary everyday life, right? They need food. Jesus has compassion on them. And here's the point. The hope of the gospel intersects our daily life every day, moment by moment by moment. The hope of the gospel intersects our lives and the lives of all those that we come in contact with. I think that's one of the greatest applications we need to see from this text this morning. What we didn't read was all the rest of chapter 11 that shows how Jesus in his ministry comes to Mary and Martha and intersects their lives At a very critical point. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, three very ordinary people living very ordinary lives and tragedy all of a sudden strikes in in Lazarus's home and he falls ill. And the result of his illness was that he died and he was put into a tomb. Well, Martha and Mary, when. When Lazarus got ill, sent word to Jesus and told him the one whom you love is sick. And so Jesus makes a statement when he hears of this in verse four, saying this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. What I want us to see from this text this morning is that God uses the circumstances of our everyday lives to reveal his glory. That's what he's doing through Mary and Martha's life and Lazarus. And so foundationally, we understand this is this is really the theme of the gospel and the theme of our text. That God uses everyday activity and that he of our lives and that he receives glory through everyday activity in our lives. But here in this text that God receives glory through the glorification of the son That Jesus gives hope to Martha and to Mary and to Lazarus by raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we see, ultimately, we see that the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ give us hope and purpose because Christ has conquered the curse of sin, which is death. That's what this raising of Lazarus that we saw last week, part two of the resurrection and life. That's what the raising of Lazarus shows us, that Christ has triumphed over the curse of sin, which is death. And this is what John is pointing us to see in the recording of this seventh sign. And so, believers, here's the thing. We know the hope. And the purpose of. That comes from Christ in our daily life because God through Christ by his Holy Spirit leads us daily. And so as we approach this text this morning, I want us to see from from three different perspectives the approach on this passage. The first perspective I want us to see is that of Martha and Mary. Martha and Mary represent the perspective of those who are currently walking through the trial walking through the suffering or the difficult time in life. Verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what, she, what he had done believed in him. There were many Jews who had come beside Mary and were walking with her, following her as she had gone to Lazarus's graveside or tombside uh, to weep, or as they thought she had, but she had gone to see Jesus. And when she got to Jesus, she fell at his feet and she wept there. But Martha and Mary represent this perspective of those who are walking through various trials. And here's the thing. God allows Martha and Mary to go through an incredible trial. Why? So that God might be displayed through their suffering. So from Martha and Mary, we learn to see the bigger picture of God, that he is at work beyond the scope of our understanding For in verse four, when he heard, that's when he said the sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God might be glorified by it. And so we see that he remained there two days longer before he journeyed and went to meet Martha and Mary. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew that at the point that the messenger had come, Lazarus had already died and he He was already being placed in the tomb. So when he arrives there, he had been in the tomb four days. Here's the thing. As Martha and Mary suffered through the trial of their brother's passing, their belief in Jesus was strengthened by by his presence. Jesus comes to them and and ministers to them through through his presence. And he comes to them and he ministers to them by his word and, and speaking to them, saying, your brother will rise again. And then he comes to them and he ministers to them through his power when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so as they witnessed the power and the the work of Christ, they realized the words that Christ was speaking, that Jesus was speaking, were authoritative words. They were powerful words to accomplish exactly what he said he would do. When he told Martha, if you believe, Jesus said, if you believe, your brother will rise again. And so here's the point I think we see from Martha and Mary's perspective. If we're walking through a difficult season such as grief, like Martha and Mary or perhaps even walking through a a trial, a great trial, we can know without doubt that we'll find comfort and we'll find compassion from Jesus Christ. And we can know and hope from Christ's ministry of presence and word and power that by His Holy Spirit, He works in the life of all those who are His children. And so whatever it may be, whatever might be happening in our lives, understand this, for those who are children of God, The ministry of presence and word and power by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer gives us hope and strength to walk through any and every circumstance and trial that we are going through. There is hope for all of us in Martha and Mary's perspective, because none of us are are exempt from difficult trials. But in Christ, we have one who is compassionate. We have a Savior who, like a shepherd, leads us. We might never know the great work that God is accomplishing through the circumstances of our lives, or or we might not know it until we get to the other side and and are able to look back and see just how God has been orchestrating things in our lives through our suffering, through our difficulties, through, through the trials that we've walked through. And it's in the midst of those trials that, The glory of God is displayed for for all to see. You see, Mary and Martha give us the perspective of ones who are walking through the trial. But we also learn from Mary and Martha that as they grow in faith and learn to trust God, their lives are impacting the lives of others. In 1818, in France, a nine year old boy named Louis or Louis, perhaps, was sitting in his father's workshop. And his father was a a harness maker. And the boy loved to watch his father work with leather. He told his dad, someday, dad, I want to be a harness maker just like you. His dad said, well, why not start now, son? So he took a piece of leather, he drew a design on it. And he said, now, my son, take take the hole puncher and begin tracing out the line that you've drawn. Take the hammer and begin hitting that hole punch and tracing that line out. And follow the design, but be careful that you don't hit your hand. And as he swung the hammer the first time, the boy was so excited that when he swung the hammer the first time, he missed the hammer and it broke and shattered. And somehow, somehow, a piece plunged through his eye and took his sight immediately from that eye. And then it wasn't too long later that he lost sight in his other eye. And then Lewis was completely and totally... Blind. Then a few years later Lewis was sitting by his dad in the family garden, and as they were sitting there a friend handed him a pine cone. And as he ran his little sensitive fingers over that pine cone, the idea came to him. He became enthusiastic and he, he began to create an alphabet of raised dots on paper so that the blind uh, so that all the blind could feel and could interpret what was written thus. Louis Braille opened up a whole new world for the blind, all because of an accident that he had. You see, we never know just in what ways God might use the trials that we walk through in life in order to strengthen and to encourage others, in order to make provision for somebody else, in order to bless the lives of others. And like Martha and Mary We must learn to trust and to follow God. We must learn to allow the gospel to shape our lives. It was Martha and Mary's circumstance that provided occasion for Christ's exaltation through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was through their suffering. That many other. Heard the gospel and saw the glory of God displayed that day. So the question, how is God shaping Your life, my life, with the hope of the gospel. The second perspective we see is that of the disciples and the Jews. In verse 45, many Jews were there. Many believed. The disciples, we learn in in verse 15 of chapter chapter 11, Jesus tells them, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. And so one of the purposes is that the disciples would believe that their faith would grow and would strengthen as they watch what's happening in Martha and Mary's life. And as they see Lazarus being raised from the dead. And the point is that Jesus gives hope and he gives life. And So the gospel impacts the disciples, it shapes their life, it shapes their faith. And, and, and also the many Jews who were there that day, the gospel is shaping their faith and their life because it says many believed in him there were many onlookers and watchers who witnessed the greatest miracle that Christ had performed and as they watched this miracle the result was they they saw and they believed they watched with astonishment as Lazarus came forth from the tomb and they believed in him you see the gospel doesn't just shape our lives through the circumstances we undergo day by day the gospel shapes the lives of others through through our circumstances, by displaying the glory of God. And so many, many responded by faith. They responded with faith. The gospel was shaping the lives of many through Mary and Martha's suffering. And as we walk through trials and as we walk alongside of others through trials, know that God is at work. He's at work drawing us to himself and drawing others to himself. So the disciples, they they had their faith strengthened because of what was going on. The Jews, they they came to leave because of what they saw happening in Martha and Mary's life. You know, trials come in in various forms, from the death of loved ones to the loss of a job, to being passed over for a promotion, maybe because of our faith. Uh, to outright persecution because of our faith for youth especially you feel this and that you're ostracized you're put out by your friends you're excluded from friends maybe because you 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 refuse to walk and to go along with the crowd and you take a stand for Christ in fact scripture is clear and tells us that we're we're to expect persecution you know but in our trials the glory of God is most often displayed through our through our lives. Remember what Jesus said in John fifteen twenty. He tells his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And James, the half brother of Jesus, gives us those encouraging words consider it all joy, my brethren, and you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you lack wisdom and knowing how to walk through these trials, ask of God who gives you, all, who gives you wisdom above or beyond reproach. You know, in the midst of the trials that we walk through for Mary and Martha, it's worth it to know that, that God is at work in the lives of others. And when his glory is displayed through our trials in the lives of others for their salvation, for their growth in faith, like the disciples, like the many Jews, then our suffering for the sake of the gospel is worth it because it points to the glory of God. It points others to the glory of God. The verse forty six shows us. Not everyone will believe. Some will refuse to believe. In fact, 46 through 48 shows us this. The chief priests and the Pharisees received the word from some of the Jews and then they convened a council and they were saying, what are we going to do? And that's when they said, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were worried. Simple point I want to make is that we're going to encounter people who will never believe the gospel. Even if they see God at work in our lives, even if they witnessed, listen, even if they witnessed the raising of a dead man, they're still not going to believe in the hope of the gospel. We see that front and center in this text. We must understand the gospel is bold and it will offend people, but the gospel also shapes the lives of many. And Jesus Christ comes compassionately as the shepherd sharing the hope. Of eternal life. And so it impacts Mary and Martha in one way and it impacts the disciples and many Jews in another way because they believe. The third perspective we see is it impacts Lazarus, right? Lazarus was the dead man. Lazarus was the one that was in the tomb. And it represents for us the tragedy of our our human condition. Lazarus is the one who is there. He is dead. He has no life in himself. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And Lazarus, Lazarus represents that condition or our humanity being dead. But as Jesus Christ gives life to Lazarus, his physical body, so we see that Christ overcomes the stench of death and the stain of sin by giving life to all who believe. And so in verse in verse 27 we hear Martha's testimony when Jesus asked her, "Do you believe this?" And Martha replied, "Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world." This was her profession of faith. And it it foreshadows what Christ does in the life of Lazarus in giving him life when he walks forth from the grave. All of us here this morning were once like Lazarus. We were once dead men and women who had no life in ourselves, no spiritual life. But God in Christ has given life to many here this morning. Perhaps there are some who don't have the life of Christ within them this morning. You've not believed on the person and the work of Jesus, and I invite you to surrender to Christ, Jesus, who gives and grants eternal life to all who believe in him. When the glory of Christ is revealed, the result is the awakening of faith. That's what we see in the lives of these Jews. That's what we see in the life of Lazarus, and that's what happens today in the life of all who hear the gospel and respond by faith. So how is the gospel shaping your life? Like Mary and Martha, he's walking you through the difficult trials or the tragedies of life. Like the disciples, like the Jews who are growing in their faith or who are coming to faith for the very first time, like Lazarus, who who receives life because of the gift of Christ. How is the gospel shaping our lives? It leads us to the second point of the text this morning, which is really a. A fourth perspective, and it has to do with why, why the gospel shapes our everyday lives. We see the gospel is to shape our everyday lives. But why the gospel shapes our everyday lives? The gospel shapes everyday life because Jesus Christ became our substitute. We see this in verse forty nine. But one of the Caiaphas, the high priest that year said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take it into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the sins of the people or for the people that the whole nation not perish. John is, is pointing us to see that the giving of life and the glory of the son can't be separated from his substitutionary death. Caiaphas statement in Verse 50 seems politically motivated on the surface, but in In all reality, verses 51 and 52 tell us that this was a prophecy. Caiaphas, being a high priest, not by his own initiative, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad As the high priest Caiaphas is prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation and the people of God who were scattered abroad and bring all people to himself, that he would become the substitute. Their plot to kill the Messiah is a fulfillment of God's greater plan. God allows, do you see what's happening here? God allows the the wicked hearts and the intent of man to bring about the glory of his saving grace. Their evil scheme of crucifying the Messiah brought really the exaltation of the Messiah. He became the substitute to satisfy the wrath of God against man's sin. This is why the gospel shapes everyday life, because ultimately, foundationally, Christ became the substitute satisfying the wrath of God against man's sin. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, he could look out and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because he became the substitute in our place. So in verse 53, we read, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. They had a conspiracy plan to take his life. Warren Wiersbe said the stage had been set for the greatest drama in history during which humanity would do its worst and God would give his best. It was John Stott who said the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The text shows us that the gospel shapes our lives because Christ became our substitute he gave his life so that we might have life the greatest application that we can make this morning is to understand how the work of christ on the cross shapes our everyday lives as a church the hope of the gospel propels us to carry out the great commission to make disciples of the nations and to to do it here in fact Crosspoint's mission statement is that Crosspoint Baptist Church exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and the glory of God. This is what we are about from VBS in our community to making disciples in Uganda and across the nations from Mexico to Uganda to the history that Crosspoint has been involved in international missions and local missions from ESL on Sunday nights to equipping classes and discipling our people the Sunday morning Bible study, we we understand how the gospel applies and shapes our everyday lives by being intricately involved in the community of faith. And as seniors and seasoned men and women, we must be diligent to seek the Lord, that that our faith might be characterized as, as growing in Christ That we would invest in others and younger men and and younger women, older men, older women investing in younger men and younger women, parents, mothers and fathers. We we're we're parenting our children, teaching them how the gospel shapes our everyday lives through trials and through triumphs. We must teach our children through life's lessons about Christ, our substitute. And we must constantly remind ourselves of Christ, our substitute is our greatest advocate against sin. We must seek to carry out the mission that God has given us by allowing and seeing how the gospel shapes our everyday life. So the question is, how will you respond to the gospel? We see the perspective from Mary and Martha, from Lazarus, from the disciples, from the Jews. I want us to hear this morning from the perspective of one whose life has been shaped and impacted and continually impacted from the gospel. And so. We have Shane folks who's going to come in a moment and share a testimony about what God has been doing in his life and through his life as God has been using the gospel and shaping his life as he's gone and, and served uh, overseas. And, and, and I want you to see the connection. Here's the connection, Crosspoint, as Crosspoint uh, began investing in Shane's life when he served as an intern here. And then he, he went and served in, uh, as he'll tell us in a moment, for, for four months in Uganda. And then he's come back and then he served as the pastor in training for two years while at Grace. And this is a work that God began doing in the life of one person through the ministry of Crosspoint. And so I, I want us to hear a living illustration about how the gospel has shaped the life of one And because it shaped the life of one, it shaped the lives of so many others. And so, Shane, would you come this time, brother?
1: Thank you very much. It is certainly a joy to gather with you this morning. I don't need a pulpit. Um, To rejoice in what God is doing in my life and in your life. And I appreciate what Nick said about um, God really beginning a work in me here at Crosspoint summer of 2009. Was anyone here when that happened? Yeah, some of you. Awesome. So I, I will tell you straight up that I would not be here where I am um, and having the experiences that I've had without Crosspoint in the summer of 2009. So I'm grateful to you that you've put up with me for this long, that you welcome me back, and that you allow me to share. So as Nick said, I just returned from four months in Uganda teaching at Uganda Baptist Seminary uh, what a pleasure to do that. Many of you have heard of the seminary. Some of you have traveled there. Um, your, uh, your prayers go out to it. And so I want to share a little bit about what I did, show some pictures, everybody likes pictures, and uh, tell you kind of what I did there and what's next and how you can be involved in that. All right, so let's start off here. Uh, these first pictures are of Jinja, Uganda. This is the town where Uganda Baptist Seminary is located. Sort of a small town on the northern side of Lake Victoria. This is uh, sort of a downtown shot. You can see um, just sort of old, sort of dilapidated buildings. Uh, Let's go to the next one. The way of travel in town is what's called a boda-boda, which is a motorcycle taxi. And let me just say, nothing is more exhilarating than flying through town, clinging onto the back of a motorcycle, as thousands of them just go by you. Uh, Really crazy, but it wakes you up in the morning. So it's a great time. Um, There's another shot there. This is um, Ginja is a really cool place. It's exploding in growth. It's very small but very crowded. And so to have the seminary in that town is really great uh, because it poises them for decades more of fruitful ministry. Uh, this is the UBS campus uh, in Jinja, right outside, sort of up the road a little bit. You can see these are some of the classroom buildings. Uh, I'm always impressed by how well they take care of the campus. Uh, Let's go to the next one. These are classroom buildings. You can see some of the workers, uh, all the walkways. You've got sort of the flowers, and everything is beautiful. And so for the students, when they come to seminary, it's, I mean, they're coming to a beautiful place. So it's not just come and learn and work really hard, but it's also come and experience the beauty of God's creation. There are prayer gardens. There are uh, in the evening times when people are not in class, you'll see them just outside enjoying uh, nature. This picture, one of my favorites, this is at the sort of edge of campus. Uh, On the right there, those bars, that's a closed-in back porch. That is the apartment or the house of uh, Vernon and Sandy Sivage. Some of you may have heard of them. Uh, They may have spoken here. Uh, Vernon is the academic dean, uh, longtime IMB missionary. So that's their house. And then right by it, sort of next to it, uh, back here, was my apartment. And so it's really cool to have this like jungle oasis in the back there that you could go to at the end of the day and birds are chirping and monkeys are screeching and all this stuff. And it's just great. It's beautiful to be a part of this and to be able to do God's work in this place. This is my apartment. Um, This is before it got decorated. So it looked better later on. Uh, But this is kind of when I first moved in. That's my living room. And if it looks small, that's because it is small. Uh, It's about a Six by eight or so, I guess, uh, living room. But you can see I had everything I needed, a desk and a chair. That's about uh, a comfy chair and a desk to work. So that was my living room where I would hang out. Uh, My kitchen, you can see a full kitchen. That's sort of before I moved in. Um, And uh, I did not cook a lot. I don't particularly care to cook. But I could if I wanted to. So just knowing I had the option was good. So a full kitchen. Uh, Let's go to the next one. You can see... Um, Next, that's my bedroom Uh, Again, before I sort of moved in You see my luggage Uh, I had a bed and a giant closet So I was comfortable And then one more And a bathroom That's what an African bathroom looks like Uh, Actually, that's not true That's what a Western bathroom in Africa looks like Um, So, you know, people, it's kind of funny They ask me, you know, how was Africa And what was it like to live there What they mean is, what was it like to rough it you know, like out in the sticks somewhere. And I say, <clears throat> I tell them, I have no idea because I lived in a really nice apartment. Um, I kind of joke with people and I tell them this apartment was pretty much better than anything I've lived in since I left home. Uh, you know, if you've been to college, you live in some sketch places sometimes, but that's where I lived. This picture, uh, does anybody know what that animal is? It is not a salamander, it's close. It's a gecko, yeah. Um, I put this on there because I had many pets while I was in Africa. Um, unfortunately, they were closer than I cared for them to be. Uh, in, in these rooms, you know, you've got sort of open windows, and my front door had about an inch gap under it. So things come in. And uh, I had many, many geckos. You're sitting there at night, you're watching you know, something on my computer, I'm reading a book, and you look up, and there's just five or six of them crawling around. Um, not a big fan, It's okay, they eat bugs, so I appreciate the work they do until you're taking a shower and you grab your towel and there's one sitting on it. Then I don't appreciate it as much. But nonetheless, uh, this was a guy named uh, Geico. Uh, I named him. I thought it fitting. And uh, they kept me company. So, oh, I should note too, I was really kind of worried. One day I was talking to some of the workers and they were telling me that in the last two weeks, unbeknownst to me, they had killed five snakes... Within about 20 feet of my apartment. That's about five too many. Uh, Especially given that my front door has about an inch gap. That's more than enough for a snake. So um, luckily though, it was just geckos for a while. So that was my apartment. When it comes to teaching at UBS, you can see there the courses that I was able to teach. Um, All of this in four months. So we were booking it. Um, Teaching multiple classes a day. Usually different subjects. New Testament general epistles was really fun. Uh, walking through most of them uh, having to do with uh, false teaching. How does the church respond? Christology, about as, as important as it gets. Who is Jesus? Um, not just who people out there say he is, but who does the scripture say he is? Especially in light of her, uh, heretical groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Baptists and Islam. I put intro to Islam in parentheses. What's interesting is the university, the seminary there, cannot call that class Introduction to Islam because for the sake of accreditation, um, people in the higher-ups education department will think that they are teaching against Islam, and there are many Muslims in the education department, in the government. So they have to call it Baptists in Islam. So it's sort of a comparison class. Uh, But I tossed that aside and ran with Intro to Islam and talked. Basically, if you came to my equipping class, that's what I taught. So history, theology, practice... And then we took a week on apologetics. How do we respond to Islam? Uh, what does the Scripture say about it, and all of that? So it was a really good time. Bible study methods and interpretation—probably one of my favorite ones that I taught there. Um, that's one of the first classes you take. Day one, as a seminary student, there you take how to study the Bible, and it's really cool to teach people theology. But it's really even cooler to take one step back and say, "Here's not—it's not just what the Bible says." But here's how you can actually study the Bible and learn it for yourself and prepare Bible study lessons and sermons and then teach others. Uh, that was really great to be able to do that. Church history, not my forte. Um, and then English. If you're, Anybody here like ESL teachers? Yeah, Michelle, something. Kudos to you. Man, um, that opened my eyes to the joy and the struggle of teaching English to uh, uh, non-English speakers for the most part. Uh, Countries represented in my classroom. One of the cool things about teaching at UBS is that in one classroom, you know, I teach one class, I'm able to impact uh, six countries. So I would have students, some of them traveled 100 miles to get there. Some of them traveled 1,000 miles to get there, took three or four days on a bus. And from all of these countries, it's incredible that I'm teaching them these lessons. And then they're going to go back, not just to their churches, but to their countries. And teach those same lessons to their church members. Many of these pastors that are students um, have their own Bible schools in their villages. So in three weeks, which is a term, I could teach 20 students but impact 20 churches in six countries. That's cool, I think. What an opportunity to impact the nations from one location. Um, This is one of the main classrooms at UBS. This is sort of a traditional what it would look like. This is our chapel room uh, because it was the biggest. So uh, a chalkboard, hadn't seen one of those in ages, but I was able to use a chalkboard, and um, the students uh, just there, it's open air, fans. I think this was a chapel service. Um, So we would do chapel services every day. Students would preach. We would sing a hymn. And let me just say, it's really cool to be singing a song with people from multiple different countries. Um, we come together and we just have a good old Baptist hymnal and we're singing, you know, the power in the blood and you've got these guys and it's like, I don't know any of these guys. We barely speak the same language, but we're worshiping the same God and we are saved by the same Christ who, as Nick said, was our substitute. So just, just a joy to worship with other, uh, other nationalities. This is one of my favorite pictures. You can't really tell, but this is six thirty in the morning. I don't like 6.30 in the morning, uh, personally. But for these students, six days a week, they go in class from 6.30 to 4.30. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, I prefer the you know two days a week style. But uh, six days a week from 6.30 to 4.30, these guys are in class. They're learning. They're studying. And when they're not in class, they're reading for the next day. So the um, the initiative, the determination, the work ethic just blew my mind. But this is 6.30. Wait, sorry, go back. Uh, 6.30 in the morning, they are actually taking either a midterm or a final. And I just like that picture. You know, I kind of snuck over to the door and took a picture of it. If if you're a teacher in the room, you probably understand that it's more fun giving an exam than taking one. I've taken a lot of exams in my day, and it was such a joy to give one and then just sort of stand back and say, hee, 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 you know? Good luck. Um, So uh, really, really cool. But it was great to see... People thinking, um, writing out what they've thought, what they've learned, and you know you're grading an exam, and you think, yes, these guys are getting it. They're they're wrestling with the text, they're thinking, and they're learning. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, this next one, uh, I had the pleasure of experiencing a graduation in March. We graduated about seventy students, either from certificate diploma, advanced diploma, or even a master's degree offered by or in conjunction with uh, Southeastern Seminary. So um, go to the next one. This is a picture. Our graduation, you put all these people under the tent. Everybody and their dog was coming, families. I mean, this this is a huge deal. And, And it's really cool, too, because in America, you know, it just seems like almost everybody goes to college. And graduations are fun, kind of a big deal, but then you move on. In Africa, graduation is huge. I mean, this is an all-day event because many of these people are the only person in their family to have ever gone to any sort of uh, institution like this. And so they throw a wild party, and there's so much rejoicing, and so it was cool to be a part of that. Uh, This next picture is we're lining up. Somehow I got put in charge of putting people on lines, Um, so I cracked the whip, and we just did it. Uh, If you look closely, you'll see that I have very long hair. Uh, First time ever but I cut it all off before anyone could see. <coughs> uh, this next picture, this is us at the front. We're um, sort of standing in a horseshoe up at the front. We're, you know, reading the, the names and things like that. You can see me over there. It was cool to be in the faculty, uh, not the guy sitting out in the rows, but to be in the faculty was really cool. Uh, this next one, just to sort of introduce you, you um, guy on the, facing us, a short, uh, bald guy, is um, Dr. Clive Jarvis, a retired British pastor who goes there about six months out of the year to teach. He's a church history guru. And what's really cool is he lives in London. And as I'll talk about here in a minute, I'm about to move to London. So I was able to ask him tons of questions and just drill him about, you know, what, what do you do here? How do you say this? And all these things. So I'm really excited to have a contact. Next to him is Dr. Anthony Shelton, who is becoming the new Um, academic dean. Um, I'm trying to think who's next to him. Uh, The fourth guy is Dr. Sivage, um, and then, of course, Jack Frost. The tall guy, sort of six, one, two, three, six from the end, I just want to tell you quickly, is a guy named Dr. John Ewart, who is one of the vice presidents at Southeastern Seminary. Now, the cool thing is um, I get there, and I'm talking to him, and he says, hey, what's your name? I say, my name's Shane Folks." He says, well, are you any kin to Gary. Well, yeah, actually, that's my dad. Turns out, Dr. Ewart was the pastor of my home church when I was a child in Oklahoma. Um, he baptized me, and I hadn't seen him in 20 years, so I didn't recognize him. And uh, what a small world to travel around the world and to find my old pastor. So it was really cool, really exciting. We were able to talk, and he was telling me all the things, uh, places he had been since then. So I uh, really praise God for that moment. All right, next two church visits that I think you'll be interested in. First was to Bugitty, which Crosspoint has had a partnership with about five or six years. So I was able to preach a Sunday morning service and do a site visit um, for the construction progress. Uh, First picture, that is the church, sort of big open area. The one in the back is the worship center. Um, Next picture, this is the construction project. They're building a classroom. Uh, As you can see, they've made it to the top the roof. And so it's kind of funny, um, Pastor George is going to take advantage of any situation and use it how he can. So until they get a roof on it, go to the next picture, they'll grow crops inside. Uh, And I was like, hey, if it works, you know, might as well. So until they get the roof on, they're using it for crops. Um, And so they're close uh, to getting it finished. And money from, uh, I know from Grace and I think from Crosspoint as well, has gone to that to help them to build this classroom situation because they have kids everywhere. Next picture, there's Pastor George, Dr. Sivage He's shown us around. Uh, kind of gave us the the layout of the land. This is Pastor George and his cows. These are like uh, his cows. Uh, you can sell the milk, make money. You can also use these cattle to teach the pastors better cow raising um, practices, which is which is fun. This is Bugitty Baptist Church, the congregation. Um, Amen. Crosspoint bought those cows. They're good-looking cows, I will say that. Uh, yeah, and so it's really great. And, and Pastor George, man, he was proud of them. I'll tell you, Dr. David, he was very proud. Um, so this is the congregation. You can't see it, but there are scores of kids in the back. And so um, Pastor George has a long-term vision for starting a school to um, train these kids, not just in education in general, but to teach them the gospel at a young age. Because if you can change the children, you can change the country. Um, second church visit, Faith Baptist Church Busambathia. This is our new partnership. Um, for about a year now, I was able to preach a Palm Sunday service, which was really cool. Um, I, Palm Sunday is just a great time of the year. I was able to preach answering the question, why do we call it Good Friday? Everybody knows what Palm Sunday is. Everybody knows what Easter is. But very few of them knew what we mean by Good Friday. And so we walked through Romans 3. Why do we call it good? Because on that day, though it was the greatest evil probably ever committed, it was also the greatest good in that Christ died, as Nick has told us, as our substitute. And so that's a good day for us. So walking through Romans 3 was a joy for that. And then I taught an afternoon conference, two things. One, I taught what is the gospel. Many of these um, guys that had come to the church would are believers. They know what they believe. But they have difficulty articulating what they believe. And so one of the things I taught was, what is the gospel? What is the core of our belief in that if someone says, hey, share the gospel with me, you say, oh, it's this, these things. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you see that it is basically death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the second one, soft points for evangelism. Trying to teach these guys, many of them minister in Muslim settings, large, predominantly Muslim settings. And so, how do I share the gospel with a Muslim without saying something that is really going to start a fight really quick? So, I can't attack Muhammad. I can't talk about the Quran. I can't talk about uh, other beliefs in Islam like that. So, how do I start a gospel conversation? And the same goes for us as well even today in other settings. And so, we talked about soft points for evangelism. Things that we have in common with everyone that easily move us from a simple mundane conversation to a spiritual one. So, for example... Everyone in Africa has either lost someone to death, is about to, or is experiencing sickness. Sickness and death is everywhere. So you're talking to someone and you say, how do you, how do you, how do you process this? How do you find comfort when your loved ones are, die, are dying or dead? And if they're not a Christian, they tell you their answer. And then they ask you, how do you do it? Right there, you're able to take a normal conversation, a soft point, and move it into a spiritual conversation and say, well, actually, I, I think about Jesus. That's how I find hope. And so we looked at some of those, equipping these guys to um, share the gospel in their villages. And so this picture is after the conference. This is Busambatia. That's the little worship center behind there. Uh, some of the people on my left is Pastor Ronald. So a uh, great man of God and really excited um, that Crosspoint is partnering with them. This next picture, I assume everyone has maybe heard about, or if not, I'll tell you. Um, is trying to build a new worship center. As you can see, theirs is sort of falling apart. But before we did that, we wanted to purchase two tracts of land next to the church. Um, one reason is to have land for future growth. What I appreciate about Pastor Ronald is he's thinking long term. But secondly, in Africa, in Uganda in particular, if you are a Christian church and there's an empty spot of land by you, give it a little bit of time and a mosque will pop up. Uh, a Muslim prayer center because they do not want churches to grow and experience all of these things without a mosque right next to it because they want to try to counteract what the church is doing. And so we wanted to take advantage of that situation by the land and make sure that a mosque could not be built next to the church because we want to see the church grow and flourish. So they are standing on the first piece of land. They're rejoicing and celebrating. And I was able to tell, um, pastor Ronald, Um, that the funds had come in. He told me what they needed for the land, and I was in my mind thinking God will provide. Within a week, God had provided, and I was able to tell him. He swung by the seminary, and I said, hey, I got good news for you. God has provided the money for the land, and he just broke down, just weeping and rejoicing in God's provision. Yeah, so really exciting. What's that? Yeah, and that, that funding was through Crosspoint. So if it was you, thank you. Uh, and so they're, they've got more money left. I think they need just a little bit to get the second piece. And then we'll begin to put up a fence and build a, uh, a new worship center. And so what a joy to be a part of that and to know that that's coming from you guys. So next picture, that's the same thing, still celebrating. Nick, I think I'm well over our 15 minutes, but I'm almost done. Um, lessons learned in Uganda. I do want to just say real quick a couple of things that I learned or sort of were Um, more cemented in my mind. Number one, the communion of saints. You guys are here, you're gathered. I hope you understand just how sweet it is to be gathered with the family of God, to be with believers. The sweetness of a local church family. One of the greatest challenges for me was to be away from my church family. Um, But one of the greatest comforts was the sweetness of a global church family that I could go and I could gather with people that I don't know, barely talk to in a conversation. But... There's a sweetness there. There is a there is an intimacy there, knowing that we are united by Christ. And so it's encouraging. Number two, theological education. I asked several different pastors from different countries, what's the greatest challenge for the church in Africa? Answer, untrained pastors. It's the same answer every time. Because untrained pastors, they don't know the word, and they don't know how to respond to growing religions like Islam, Mormonism, things like that. And so... I was just reminded of the importance of theological education. Um, Because if our pastors don't know, then they can't teach. And if our churches don't know, how are we going to respond to all these challenges? So the need to support and partner with institutions like UBS, that was just uh, solidified for me. And the third one there, the confirmation of calling, that my calling God has given me is to equip the saints through theological education, primarily in academia, but also through international missions. Uh, The growing need for... The study of Islam and apologetics, I still get people today, well, why are you studying Islam? But Well, because we need to, um, because it's growing, and we need to know how to respond. We need to know how to witness and, uh, and help believers. And then the last one there, desire to equip saints around the world. So for me, this was a very challenging yet rewarding and uh, growing experience. So how can you help? Number one, pray. I know that's sort of always the first answer, and you think, well, does that really do anything? Yes, please pray for the IMB missionaries, the Ugandan faculty and the staff, and the students and their families. These guys are going through a lot. Every term, every week, someone would say, I just had a sister die. I just had my mom die. I just had my house burned down. I got mugged on the way to here. All these things. Uh, Send. Support UBS. You can send money straight there, and they will um, use it in the operating budget. You can pay tuition scholarships. Here's what's cool. For $440, roughly, uh, based on um, exchange rates, you can send a student through a certificate or a diploma of theology. The whole thing. At, at my seminary, that'd get you one class. But there you can do an entire degree, an entire certificate or diploma for $440. I mean, that is incredible. So if you if you feel led to do that, let me please do. Um, give scholarship money for trips to Uganda. There's one coming up in November. If you can't go, give a little money to help someone else who can go. And then the third one there, go. Go to Uganda, travel there, help out Bugidi and Busambatia. There's something for everyone to do. You think, well, I don't, I don't really know anything. I don't have any skills or whatever. Yeah, you do. There's something for you. And then maybe even volunteer to teach at UBS for those of you who would feel called that way. And so the last slide, last thing for those of you who are curious, what's next for me? Currently, the plan is to spend the summer in Oklahoma, go Sooners, um, with family. Not a lot of LSU fans up there, so it's a great place. Um, In September, I'll be moving to London, England. Pretty excited about that, to do a BA in Islamic studies, primarily for Arabic language studies. So pray for me on that. And then a PhD in Islamic studies focusing on Quranic exegesis and Islamic theology. That's just a fancy way of saying, I want to know how Muslims use their Quran to develop their theology. And then use that to equip the church to respond to it. What does the Bible say about your theology? And we'll do that. And so, teach and equip for as many years as the Lord will give me. So, thank you for listening. I rejoice in God's work here at Crosspoint. I certainly rejoice in his work in me. Thanks to you at Crosspoint. And I look forward to many, many years, should the Lord give them to me, of faithful service, uh, wherever he'll take me and wherever he will take you and use you. So thank you very much.
0: I know this has been somewhat of a different service today, uh, but the, the whole goal and our, our, our desire is that the gospel would certainly shape our lives uh, and we see how the gospel has shaped changed life. God, God has used Crosspoint as a church. He's used individuals. Uh, he has shaped so many lives uh, through the community of faith. And so I want to ask us to consider this morning. How are we responding to the gospel? Uh, how are we responding to what God is doing in our lives through his work in the gospel and the hope that he's given us in Christ? And then to. Take that answer and to praise God for it or to learn and to repent of ways that we've been unfaithful and to engage in what God is calling us to do and living out our faith and being involved in the community of saints. Let me pray for us and then we'll just have a time of uh, singing praise to the Lord, an opportunity for you to respond as the Lord is leading you, maybe to commit to him in prayer and uh, or to even uh, pray with with someone near to you or even come up front. and, And I would love to pray with you about what God is doing. In your life. Let us pray. Father. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your work in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, how you desire to shape our lives with the hope of the gospel. Lord, that you have called us to walk faithfully following you. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony that Shane has shared with us this morning and all that you continue to do through Crosspoint to reach this community. May we as a church, Lord. Be uh, be a blessing to this community. May you use us to make disciples of the nations for the good of all people and the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?